there's an undercurrent of the Christian tradition that has always recognized that humility is an essential virtue for communities and that hum humility is an especially important virtue for academic communities. So people who want to write and learn, they, they need to be humble because humility opens the world for them. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Richard Gibson and Jim Beitler are English professors at Wheaton College. A couple of years ago, they wrote a book together called Charitable Writing, Cultivating Virtue Through Words. In it, they explore the ways that writing can be a spiritual discipline and a means of loving God and loving our neighbors. As soon as I heard that such a book existed, I knew I wanted to have Richard Gibson and Jim Beitler on The Habit Podcast. They did not disappoint, as you will hear in the following conversation. Jim Beitler and Richard Gibson, I'm so happy to have you on the, Hab the Habit Podcast today. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. So you all uh, together wrote Charitable Writing, Cultivating Virtue Through Our Words. You're both uh, professors at Wheaton in the English department, teach composition and rhetoric, um, and you, you remark that a sort of professional crisis led y'all to write this book. Can you tell me about that? I'll speak first um, because of the fact that I, I think in some ways the crisis is more acute for me. My this is Richard speaking. This is but, Richard speaking. Yeah. Um, I, my educational background was not within Christian higher education. So mm -hmm. when I was hired at Wheaton 13 years ago, I was really entering a very strange and exciting new world. Um, and I realized a, a few years in that, uh, particularly in my writing classes, I wasn't really doing anything differently than I had been doing when mm -hmm. teaching at a large state university. And that wasn't entirely bad. I mean, there are certain disciplinary practices that pertain on any college campus anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. There's certain things about rhetoric that were true for the ancients as they are for us now. But I, I began to wonder what my classroom ought to look like in light of my commitments as a Christian. And that led me to go bother my friend Jim, um, <laughs> who had been educated at a Christian college, in fact, the very one at which we work. Uh, and I, I began a conversation with Jim about what could be possible for us. You know, how could we reimagine the writing classroom, and then years later, we produced a book together during a sabbatical. Uh -huh. Jim, how'd I do? You did great. Uh, <laughs> we uh, One of the things we were doing in our writing courses at Wheaton is we were trying to prepare students for writing that they would do in a variety of contexts beyond <laughs> our courses, other classes, and then life beyond Wheaton College. But what we realized was we weren't doing part of what Wheaton's mission was, um, which was uh, to think carefully about the intersection between that classroom, that content, and uh, the life of faith, um, our faith. And so one of the resources, um, at, when I was at Wheaton, I had a, a professor, Alan Jacobs, who uh, Richard had uh, as a colleague, and he had written a book called A Theology of Reading, The Hermeneutics yeah. of Love. Yeah, um, fantastic thinking, book. Yeah, thinking it. about the ways in which we need to read in light of uh, the double commandment to love God and our neighbor. 
And so as Richard uh, and I were talking, we thought, well, what if we extend that work uh, to the writing classroom? Mm -hmm. Well, you, uh, uh, the three sort of big categories or three, really the three sections of the book um, are, you know, humble listening, loving argument, and uh, what a hopeful, keeping time, hopefully. I'd love to talk about those three sections. Um, you know, and the way you talk about humble listening, I, I really, I really love that. And I, I love the way you present and you speak of humility, not as only a negative virtue of squelching pride or, or similar sins, but rather an opening up and, and a, a freedom from really our own brains, <laughs> a freedom to, to enjoy and be interested in things other than our own selves, which seems exceedingly important uh, for a writer. So Kim, can I, can I speak to you to talk about first? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I want to back up and go back to the crisis just for a second. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I left out the best part, which oh, is that okay, we found good. a solution. Um, <laughs> and that, tie, that ties into the organization of the book, because the book okay. is organized around the, the, themes, the key themes that emerged out of the conversation that Jim and I had. So, um, so Jim, and, Jim and I uh, developed this idea to write a book called Charitable Writing, uh, um, based on on Alan's precedent, but then we had this kind of problem of well, what what does that book even need to contain, and what would be the basis of a book called charitable writing? I mean, what do we know? Um, <laughs> so our our first plan, and 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 we still actually have some embarrassingly enough have some of the documents where we laid this out um, was to one write, of which is a, one of which is a napkin. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a, a napkin, um, uh, Starbucks napkin. Contribute um, that to the Wade Center or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can they can clean something up with it. Um, uh, coffee stain, maybe. Um, anyway, so our original plan was to organize the book around doctrines, hmm. um, and and I think what we were trying to do was a kind of theological underpinnings book that would help people to see that you know key doctrines of the Christian faith, like the doctrine of creation, mm -hmm. have something to tell us about our writing process. And I think Jim and I still believe that to be true. But as we were starting to work on the book, it, it, it just it wasn't quite taking the right shape. Things weren't mm -hmm. going the right way. And we weren't utterly dissatisfied with it, but it just it didn't feel quite right, especially given that our audience, the audience for, that we were originally imagining for the book was going to be students at a Christian college. Now, we've discovered you know, even the fact we're having this conversation is a testimony to what we discovered, which is that other people care, which yeah. is exciting for us. But our breakthrough came one day when I was pondering humility. Um, and I, I just was thinking about humility and I was thinking about the problem of how, how do you visualize humility? What does humility look like in practice? And how, how can I explain it to someone else? And then um, using a, a, a certain search engine that we all know and love, provided for us by our, our good friends at Google, I just started looking for classic Christian depictions of humility in the visual arts. Uh -huh. And I stumbled upon a picture by this 15th century Italian painter named Benedetto de Bindo. Uh, what a name. And Benedetto <laughs> has this picture in which Mary is depicted humbly, seated on the ground, holding our Lord, and then opposite in a second panel, so it's, a, it's called a diptych, a two-panel picture, there's Jerome 
translating the New Testament. And th this picture was a huge breakthrough for, for, for me and Jim because it, it allowed us to say, hey, wait, maybe our book could be about the virtues. Hmm. And maybe in some sense, charitable writing is our attempt to bring together lots of different kinds of materials to help other people to imagine how the virtues that we know and love and, and are, you know, frequently giving lip service to could actually be a part of our writing practice. And Jim, what do you want to say about, about this, about the humble listening section itself? Well, I just want to just follow up on what you said. And, and, yeah. and in that, when we, when we made that step, we, we realized we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Uh, in any sense, the the Christian tradition is rich yeah. with all all sorts of resources, uh, both for thinking about uh, practice, uh, but also uh, for thinking about um, uh, models for imitation. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And those two things go together. And so the the artwork, which we have several pieces in the book, um, kind of uh, we we think help help our readers and helped us for sure uh, uh, with those two things practice and imitation uh, of the virtues in the writing life. Yeah. In, in terms of humility specifically, um, I you know we're, we we definitely our our big insight which we we gathered through C.S. Lewis kind of officially mm -hmm. in the writing, and then the the unspoken voice who should have gotten more credit is the the poet Dante, mm -hmm. um, because as we were, we were thinking about, about humility, we realized like, okay, there, there's a lot that we can say about humility and the way in which humility allows us to combat pride. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a good yeah. thing for writers. But as we were trying to imagine our students enacting humility, we started kind of looking at other resources and we realized actually there's a, there's an undercurrent and I think it's long running, but it's an, there's an undercurrent of the Christian tradition that has always recognized that humility is an essential virtue for communities and that hum humility is an especially important virtue for academic communities. So mm. people who want to write and learn, they, they need to be humble because humility opens the world for them. Um, yeah. and, and I know it's... it's I think that's the big insight from yeah. that, that chapter is... We all know that that humility is important and necessary for community and for for creativity, but I think we still tend to think of it as negative. Right? Yeah. It's it's important for community because it squelches the pride that hurts community. Yeah. Um, and and I love this idea of of you know how do we talk about? I mean, really, the the idea of finding new metaphors to talk about lots of things is pretty central yeah. to to your. Yeah your book and we'll get to, to yeah. uh, new metaphors for talking about argument in a minute. But, but um, you know, I, I think we really need some better ways of talking yeah. about humility as a, as a way of opening us up and not just a way of shutting down something. And yeah. I hope that y'all did that. In this uh, book. Uh, one of my uncles who's a Buddhist uh, read the book generously. Uh -huh. um, and the, 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 the humble listening section was his favorite section. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, what, he, what, he, what really resonated for him was the way that we're making an argument for what other, other traditions will refer to as something like a beginner's mind, right? A kind mm -hmm. of willingness to say, hey, I don't know everything. And maybe shedding some of my learning or shedding some of my authority allows me to go back to the beginning and reconsider the problem I'm facing, the object I'm describing, the issue that I'm, I'm trying to address. 
um, and that there's a kind of strength in embracing our Lord's model of humility, you know, and that in some sense, being Christ-like in a humble way allows us to become better, more insightful writers because we can get past our own presumptions that we already know what's going on. We never do. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, and then there's a practice that's associated with yeah. that, and, um, and, and that is listening. And so in the book, we talk a great deal about listening. And of course, then what, what the, the question becomes, what do, we, what do we need to listen to? And it's, it's in part the arguments of others. Um, listen very carefully to those. Uh, but then it's also uh, thinking about how we listen to um, not just uh, arguments, but in a kind of metaphorical sense, listening to the conventions mm-hmm. of discourse, mm-hmm. um, the, the kinds of texts that we're um, we're, we're constructing. What are their what are their key features, and how I, how might we attend to those carefully? Um, so we really talk about listening in, in several different ways in the book as well, and and it's that practice that allows us to um, to enact uh, the virtue of humility. Mm, yeah, I. Um I, I, I know on at least one occasion in, in the in your book you quote from uh, the book they say I say which is a book I've used in in the yeah. classroom before um, and I, I think it's, it's such a uh, such a beneficial book in so many ways and yeah. and one thing I really appreciate about that book and I know it doesn't originate here but it's just where I'm I'm used to it's where I, I got accustomed to it was the idea that that we're inviting students to participate in a conversation that they didn't start that's right and and that. A, they didn't start the conversation, but B, they have something to, con- to contribute to that conversation. So that, that book uh, starts with a very famous metaphor from Kenneth Burke about an unending conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, may, you may remember it. So uh, the, Kenneth Burke invites us to imagine that you enter a parlor and there's a conversation going on uh, that's been going on long before you got there. And yeah. so you go into the parlor, you, you listen for a while. There's that word listening yeah. until um, you catch the tenor of the argument. Those are Bur- Burke's words. Um, and then you put in your oar, Burke yeah. says. You kind of make your own argument. Yeah. And, but, but then the, the conversation is going on so long um, that you need to leave. And uh, mm-hmm. so you leave with the conversation still vigorously in process. And, and so many writing instructors use that metaphor to help students think about the academic life and the writing life. Yeah. Uh, what, our bo- what our book does is it, it's got a kind of secret structure. <laughs> um, so if you think about three of the parts of that metaphor, uh, you, you come in and you listen, uh, then you put in your oar, and then you leave because the, the, the conversation keeps going. It's interminable, Burke says. We were thinking about the virtues that go along with those things. Yes. So what's the virtue that goes along with listening? It's humility. Um, what's the virtue that goes along with putting in your oar? It's charity. Yeah. And what's the virtue that goes along um, with uh, leaving the conversation and hoping it continues? It's hope, um, uh-huh. essentially. So. Yeah. It's great. I love it. Um, again, to, to continue the idea of humility, when we resist the contributions of others in our, in our work, uh, and y'all talk about this, we, we more or less by definition limit ourselves to our own brilliance. <laughs> and I don't care how brilliant you are, you're just not quite brilliant enough. No. The two of you may be. I, 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 maybe I should yeah, speak for you. Definitely not. No. <laughs> um, no, 
and I, I mean, certainly Jim, Jim and I, I think Jim and I, especially given that we're English professors, I mean, what, what attracted us to academia is that we wanted to spend our lives listening to other people. Um, yeah. You know, I, like I really like reading, but but my favorite thing to do is to read. Um, and that's the, the best part of the job for me is reading with other people, um, particularly getting a chance to read like, you know, rich literature that, you know, like Jim's discussion of of the Burke analogy, like it just keeps giving us something. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, right now I'm preparing to teach a course in the fall on Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And uh, I mean, every page of Anna Karenina, it gives me something. Um, And I would be happy to just have as my job reading Anna Karenina. I've gotten pretty close. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think, I think that's, I, I think that's the reward of humility is, is, is when we stop perceiving ourselves as as having to be the answer man or the answer woman and mm-hmm. no, and have the answer to everything, suddenly we realize there's there's this these enormous traditions, tremendous works that have been composed by others that are still relevant to us and that can still resonate with us and help to help us to explain the world to ourselves and then in turn help us to explain the world as we understand it to others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I think you, humility is really life giving. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And as you give up on the uh, on the idea that you're supposed to be the the answer man or the answer woman, you greatly improve your chances that you might help somebody find some better answers. That's true. Well, speaking of helping other people find and 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 to to together you know together with other people finding uh, answers, finding truth, I'd love to move on to section two: uh, charitable argument or loving argument. Uh, and as you say. Um, Love and argument are kind of an odd couple. That's, we, we, we aren't accustomed to thinking of love and argumentation as, as working together in the same yoke. So, uh, Yeah, Jim, solve that problem. Yeah, could you solve that for us, Jim? It's a tricky one, for sure. <laughs> I mean, th- th- this, is, this is one of the things about the book. Th- this, this book is an invitation uh, to think about um, the ways in which uh, the virtues go together with the writing process. And there are lots of answers to that question. Uh, how can we bring the kind of Christian understanding of charity together with the discipline and practice of writing? So we don't, we don't claim that we have all of the answers about this. What, one of the things that we do in the book is we invite uh, readers to consider the metaphors that we're using um, when we talk about argumentation. So uh, argumentation uh, tends to get uh, talked about in terms of war uh, metaphors. Um, This is uh, uh, something other scholars have talked about extensively. And so we were thinking, what are some some fresh metaphors um, uh, that actually come to us from the Christian tradition that we might employ um, in thinking about argumentation more fruitfully? I was really struck when Jim and I spoke with some federal judges last summer uh, okay. about some of the themes of charitable writing. And one of, the, one of the judges talked about the way in which she understands her court as a place in which she needs to give dignity to the participants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really struck by that as a kind of second order consideration for those of us who actually oversee arguments. Um, you know, I, th- I think the arguing is loving insofar as making a rational argument to someone else shows that you think that person is a rational fellow human being. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I also think that that argumentation is inherent in language itself. So to me, if we go back to the failed first attempt at charitable writing, and like I think I think argument is part of the doctrine of creation. Like I, I and I think it's really remarkable that God left us a space as you know, rational, willing beings to make arguments to one another. You know, where, where should we eat for lunch? Like the, mm-hmm. the answer to that question is an argument. Where should we build the bridge? What's the best yeah. law? Should we go to war? I mean, all of those all of those situations are places where we get to express ourselves as humans and lovingly invite other people into the process of decision making. Um, but you know, I also am really struck by the idea that when we conduct arguments, we're also almost in all cases re- going to remain attached to the people that we make arguments to or, or have arguments with. Um, so love needs to be a part of it because other otherwise mm. the community just falls apart. Like the, you know, like if there's no love. An argument leads to a, a kind of breakdown, um, uh, and I was just—I was just thinking while you both were talking about the way in which I think our book is also really trying to make a very strong case for hopeful argumentation, where we make a contribution to an, a larger conversation, and thereby hope that that conversation is going to keep going. But that there's certain conversations that Jim and I are very invested in. And that we're going to spend our lives writing and teaching about with the hope that people will continue having that conversation uh-huh. well into the future. And if it's yeah. not for our sponsorship, some of those questions might go away. Mm. Um, you, know, I th- you know, I think this is, uh, I'll reveal our ages. I mean, Jim and I are now in our 40s. I hope it's okay that Jim said, I, I revealed that. But Great. you know, I, I've now reached the point where I've realized how contingent so much of my world is. That if, if people don't speak up for mm. certain kind certain kinds of knowledge or certain kinds of debates, like those those or or even books, the books I love, yeah. they can go away. Yeah. Everything needs a sponsor; or it will cease to be. Yeah, I love that language of sponsorship. Yeah. Um, and uh, to return to your idea, uh, Richard, that. Um, that we typically in argumentation uh, remain in relationship with the people that we are, or remain connected to the people we argue with. It's one of the great dangers of the internet is this sort oh of hit gosh. and run argument so that I'm true. not connected to the people that I'm arguing. So with. true. Um, and then, you know, I'm also troubled by the fact that that model then enters into, you know, I mean, yes. the Tocqueville took so much hope in the sort of local. Yes you know, the, the, the local arguments, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the idea that if, if we are making decisions in a community, we're making decisions with people that we're going to be living with That's right. later. Therefore, we're hopefully civil. And yeah. Tocqueville wandering around New England, looking at those local assemblies is music yeah. to my ears. I love that section. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great stuff. Yeah. But I see videos of school council meetings these days. Oh, yeah. That it's, it's kind of like, these people don't act like they're, these are people that they're going to be yeah. living with. So, so I, I'll speak quickly about, about this. And then Jim is far more wise than me about these sorts of matters. So then Jim, you're going to get to take it away. But uh, I, 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 unfortunately, I don't think that there's an easy quick fix. You know, I'd, I'd love to say read charitable writing and uh, <laughs> buy one or tell 12 for your friends and everything, everything will be all right. But I do think, that part of the argument that we're making, um, uh, which is a hopeful one, 
is that we really, and, and we're not the only people making this argument. There's other much more influential, much wiser Christian voices making the same argument, but that we now needs to be a time where we are reconsidering Christian education, we're reconsidering Christian formation, um, and we, we might not be able to get all the members of our own team on board with this, but for those of us who care and those of us who are we're called to Christian education, we need to look very hard at ourselves and our, the way that we're training students to prevent our people from being the instigators in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I've aged, I've become more and more convinced that we're always, we're always shadowing and imitating one another. The left and the right are always doubles of each other in some way. And so yeah. if you enter that school board meeting with the flamethrower, almost necessarily the other side's going to, to find or build their own flamethrower by the end of the conversation. So um, I'm hopeful that the coming generation of Christian scholars and statesmen, Christian voters and citizens, Christian pastors and lay people um, will realize that they need to reconsider how they have been formed and how their children are going to be formed so that our people look a bit more like Jesus in the school board meeting. Yeah. On what grounds are you hopeful, Richard? Um, well, I think, I think the thing is, is it's been striking to me to see how many books like ours have, have come into existence yeah. in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's also, I'm also hopeful because of the fact that these virtues have survived for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, again, like thinking about the contingency of, of things, you know, much has passed away. Whole civilizations have passed away, and yet here we are yeah. talking about humility, talking about agape love, yeah. talking about Christ-like hope. Um, yeah. And then, and then finally, this is a, a very small sample size, but the student response to the book has been incredible. Um, now, you know, the students in, in my class and Jim's class, like they kind of have to say. like the book, but but I mean, <laughs> the, the, the response, at least on our campus, has been really enthusiastic. And it's not because of the fact that Jim and I are so smart; it's because the students are realizing, "Oh, wait a second! Yeah, the Christian tradition is offering me such incredible resources to live well." And right to circle back to the problem of the internet, to live in a different way than the toxic society that I mm-hmm. see around me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, to me, it, it's so much of social media has just become such a corrupt place. And I, I think the students are realizing, uh, you know, a lot of my students have withdrawn multiple, if not all of their social media accounts in the last two years. Uh-huh. They don't want to see what they don't want to see those, the dirty grudge matches that are happening daily. Uh-huh. All right, Jim. Yeah, Jim, uh, Richard has teed you up as the real expert here. Yeah. So, uh, oh my goodness. So that's, Clearly not true. Thanks uh, the world, I, man. Uh, so, so I think Richard said something that I, I want to pick up on it has to do with education and what it what it looks like. I had a I had a a kind of breakthrough a couple semesters ago as I was kind of working through this book and thinking how how can I teach the second section of the book or really pivot from the first section to the mm-hmm. second section. There's a there was a there was a fellow by the name of Carl Rogers um, who practiced a form of listening and argumentation. Um, that I really like. And, and the notion is this, when, when, whenever you're arguing with somebody, you need to listen to what they say and then uh, summarize their argument to their satisfaction yeah. before you go on with making your own argument. Mm-hmm. And so that, that requires you to do two things. It requires you to practice humble 
listening, but then it also requires you to make an argument in a charitable, charitable way. So it's a kind of pivot from the first section of the book to the second. Um, so a couple semesters ago, I invited my students, instead of doing a single paper, um, kind of a single authored paper, I invited them in groups of three uh, to construct a Rogerian argument together. Mm-hmm. So they were required to pick an issue about which they disagreed mm-hmm. and then construct a dialogue on the page. Um, and the, the goal of that dialogue was not to win. Um, uh, it wasn't uh, to like convince your opponents that you, you were right, but the, the goal of the dialogue was essentially to construct a Rogerian argument um, and a, construct a good one. Um, and so what students were then doing was they were working together about issues they disagreed to construct a meaningful dialogue. Yeah. Um, and and that is, that, that's the kind of assignment I think, after, after we kind of did this in class, that's the kind of assignment um, that I think will lead to um, citizens who are able to go to that school board meeting um, and not and not bring a, a flamethrower mm-hmm. um, to to be able to say I hear what you're saying uh, this is what you're saying um, and, yeah. and this is how I can compromise or negotiate. Uh, yeah, Jim, could terms. you clarify what is the end product of a Rogerian dialogue? So in in my case, it was it was it looked like a kind of like a script. Uh, so that you'd have the students, one student's name, their statement, and then you'd have the next student's name and their their statement. So it looked like a script, uh, essentially. And, and and many of them were, you know, 12 to 20 pages uh, in length, Oof. essentially. Oof. So. And um, so the but is the end product a, a full understanding of some corner of truth? I mean, what, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the end product is an argument over an issue about which there's disagreement. Yeah. essentially. Yeah. And, and it doesn't need to resolve in a way that like, you, you know, I agree with you essentially on this point, uh-huh. finally, by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll just, I'll just add here that I've been really struck by um, my students' responses to the loving argument section of the book, um, especially in light of our principle that knowing other people's arguments allows you to make your own argument better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're working with you know, 18 and 19 year olds in at least some of the classes we teach. Jim also teaches the book in, in an advanced level with juniors and seniors, but like that's an important new thought to them um, mm-hmm. that you know, we actually want to know what, what principles and what evidence other people are pulling in. So listening carefully and lovingly to other people's arguments does multiple kinds of work for us. So yeah. on the one hand, it, it shows that we're respecting other people's dignity. Um, we're respecting other people's powers of rationality. We're, we're building and maintaining relationships, but we're also in, in some sense gaining new resources that help us to make our own case better. I mean, that's just the way we, we think within the academy. Um, but I realized while teaching my class, like the students needed the framework of like, oh, yeah. wait a second. By doing loving argument, I'm not saying that everybody is always right. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not conceding right. that a, a position that I I disagree with, for principled and evidence driven reasons, is right. But I do need to understand that position in order to respond. And understanding that alternative position actually might help me to reconsider and enrich my own. Yeah. Um, and as a Dostoevsky scholar, I mean you. 
you see this in action in Ah, Brothers K, right? Oh my gosh. Dostoevsky is so good at taking in every argument. And then of course, Dostoevsky's incredible power within the worlds that he builds is to show us where those other ideas lead. Um, uh, And, you know, circle back to this question about hope. I I think that um, Christians need, need to learn again about hope and remembering that this is a long project that God has undertaken in which we play such a minuscule role. So, Trying to keep our arguments out there in the public, make, keeping them viable, um, and not not allowing our arguments to get t- entangled with a certain picture of Christians as a kind of, I don't know, militaristic subset or, or something like that. You know, like I want to keep our I, I want to keep our ideas out there, and I, I I want us to remain a kind of Christ-like people who can continue to make those arguments because there's. They're so good, and the alternatives don't lead to places that people actually want to go. <laughs> I'll just leave you with that. Just read your Dostoevsky, and you'll grasp. Like some of the key ideas of modernity, they don't lead where people think they're headed. Yeah, yeah. That's a conversation for another time. That's right. Okay, so one thing we have uh, we we address the idea that uh, that we typically think of war metaphors and you know battle metaphors uh, when we think of argument. Uh, what are the what are some alternative metaphors uh, that might be more productive than battle metaphors? Well, a lot of people have talked about talked about this. So you know, again, we're not the first uh, to do this. There's there's metaphors of barn raising. You know, putting up a barn uh, together, making essentially allowing uh, your idea to become the property of the group, uh, not our idea. Uh, br- bread making. Um, making soup. Uh, and then the, the metaphor that we talk about in the book uh, is the feast, um, essentially argumentation as feasting. Richard, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I, I, I also just want to say we're, we're very much committed to uh, this as an ongoing question. Yeah. Um, we've done this in our classrooms where we've, we've, at, we've given students enormous pieces of paper or um, and and sent them off and said, you know, let's just think about what a good conversation is like. And then they just generate similes for 15 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. And it's often really rich and it's helpful for them in reconsidering what we're doing in our classroom. So the the feast is just one metaphor that that t- to us kind of has naturally percolated up out of the tradition um, because it allows us to think about pertinent virtues like hospitality. I mean, hospitality practices obviously are all over the place Mm -hmm. in the scriptures. They have a very strong presence in the imagined community that's coming out of the Jesus movement, right, in the New Testament. Um, So hospitality should be our thing. People should know us for our hospitality. And, you know, following Alan Jacobs' kind of breakthrough in his book on reading, we're realizing like, hey, there's all of this good ethical teaching in the Christian tradition, but our rhetorical traditions haven't really been drawing on it, or at least they haven't been doing so lately. So let's bring hospitality in, you know, let's think Mm -hmm. of ourselves as hospitable writers and readers who are entertaining other people's ideas, who are, who are, you know, projecting our ideas with the idea that they would be welcome somewhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that, that every book can be received with the same hospitality? Absolutely not. Right there, there are some books that you just might have to close a fifteen pages in, but that we should begin the exercise as agape people seeking to be hospitable. 
Mm. And the same should go with our arguments and with the context in which in which we create arguments. Um, and, and I've just found in my in my classroom situations, giving students multiple metaphors allows them to be nimble in thinking about what kind of argument should they make um, in this context or this context. And uh, for those of you who are listening out there who are teachers, this is a good exercise right now because students are very concerned about sharing positions that they might feel judged about by their peers. Um, and so I noticed a couple of years ago, and this is even before kind of the hoopla of the, of the recent past, that you know some students would kind of retreat from the conversation because they were so worried that someone else in the class was going to attack their view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know I, I think about this in particular uh, about a young woman in, in one of my classes um, who admitted following one such conversation that for years she had resisted speaking in class because she was so worried that an, a classmate would attack her view. That was her language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so creating a context in which students understand that their responsibility to one another is to try to understand the other person's argument from the inside before any kind of debate about the merits of one argument or another can begin, it's really really changed some of the dynamics in my classes where Mm -hmm. students feel much more comfortable sharing. Um, And uh, this is my last thing I want to say, and then maybe Jimmy, you want to add something here. I've also told students that they are not responsible for defending a position that they share. So, right. So if Jim shares a view in class and, uh, and he feels like he's articulated it well, and then someone raises an objection later in the conversation, Jim is not then responsible for having to go back and defend the view. It's just a view on the table. If someone else wants to articulate a reason why that view is strong or worthy, great. If not, then we just move on. Um, and that also has been helpful to students because the, the, the military metaphor almost obligates you, right? If someone attacks for you to defend, uh-huh. right? And then, and, then, and then that becomes an attack on the other person. And then suddenly the class becomes a squabble between two people whose feelings are both hurt. Mm-hmm. And neither of whom have probably learned very much that day. Yeah, yeah it, be, it becomes personal, essentially. Yeah. The, the idea is my idea uh, mm-hmm. in, in that context rather than yeah. our idea that we're going to, we're going to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, we're about to add something to that. No, I think that, uh, that, that was great. I think whatever metaphor we arrive at it, I think it's really helpful to think in terms of together, we are building something, whether that's a feast or a dance or a, or whatever. Um, and it takes American Republic, I don't know. A Republic for instance. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Uh, (laughs) And, and we need each other. We need these these different these different views. Um, so uh, you know the the ways that that um, Joseph Pieper talks about Aquinas in his in his little uh, what is it the silence of the silence of Saint Thomas or whatever that, that book is. He talks about this idea of that that Aquinas was so committed to knowing what was true that he that he was super willing to engage people who disagree yeah. with him in, yeah. in hopes that he would learn something he didn't already know. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a, such a good model. Also, Peeper's great. He also is interested in the virtues. Yeah. Right. Very good on hope. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So good. Okay. Speaking of hope, um, let's talk about the idea of keeping time, hopefully. And you all didn't offer this as a, as a 
transition between sections, but it feels like a transition. When you quote Augustine, when he says, I endeavor to be one of those who write because they've made some progress. So good. And who, by means of writing, make further progress. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so I, I hope, I hope people listening to this like Augustine, but one of my colleagues pointed out, pointed out to me like a year after the book came out that it's just thoroughly Augustinian. And yeah. I took that as a compliment. I think he meant it as a compliment, but, <laughs> but you know, I, Augustine had his, had his lamentable moments where, where he was the attacker, but he also was much, much more, much more bound up by classical rhetorical principles than I think we are. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's even more astonishing that Augustine was able to have moments like that. And you also quote him, where, uh, quote him earlier on, where Augustine says that, that humility needs to be one of the central virtues of oratory. Um, uh, but, but it, you know, Augustine was so, so rich in offering us a picture of writing for the purpose of discovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which really changes the relationship between the writer and the reader. Because if you admit at the outset, I am writing to find out what I think, mm-hmm. right? You're inviting the reader to join you on that journey toward understand. Um, yeah. Rather than saying, I know what the ultimate answer is, and now I'm presenting to you a kind of reasoned apology for it, which Augustine can also do. I, I think that, you know, I think most of us, most of the time are in the first Augustine mode. I, I think we're, we're trying to figure out what we think, which is why we're talking or writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I also and, think, I mean, even with the, as we, as we teach students to write from a thesis statement. Oh yeah. That's assuming that, that you know what your thesis statement is when yeah. you start. Yeah. Right? And if you're not open to the possibility that your thesis statement is all that you haven't had your best idea yet. Yep. You're so limited. Yep. And you've, you've read enough student papers to know it's, so often, you know, you sort of slog through and then on page four or five, they say something brilliant. Yep. And then they say, in conclusion, yep. <laughs> you know, because they didn't get the good idea yep. until page four. Well, what you're talking about, and, and, and Jim, Jim's going to speak well on this in a moment, I'm sure. But what you're talking about is rethinking, and this is an educator's problem, but it's also a, a general writer's problem, rethinking the architecture of mm-hmm. our writing time. Yep. Um, uh, you know, e- even people who are professional writers, uh, you know, I know some of my colleagues who are, are full professors, they're senior, like seasoned academics, operate on this assumption that you can just sit down and write something, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that you're, the ma- your magical fingers will just, you know, release these words in a couple of hours and you, you'll have your piece. And we all know by experience that that's not true. And so our book is really counseling people to embrace that, to recognize that we need to build different architectures of writing and to fill those architectures, not just with spaces for drafting and editing and peer review, but also prayer, mm. meditation on the examples of others who've been really valuable to us. I mean, you know, our, our book, you know, suggests that we should, we should fill our studies and our imaginations with the images of saints Mm-hmm. right or stories of of saintly lives you know for for people who are listening to that saying that eh, sounds a little little bit old school like you know every tradition has its model lives mm-hmm. you know so i know at one point in college i was going to a, a a kind of missional church and the missionaries lives were central and mm-hmm. and i would say to students who are coming from traditions like that you want to write in such a way that you channel the example of those lives into your writing you also want to make space in your writing process to remember what those lives were about. Um, so, you know, for Jim and I, 
we feel like a lot of the work that we we do with with our, our writing classrooms is just setting up structures so that students don't submit their first thought as their last thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much, so much of that is just slowing down. Uh, it's, it's, it's what we talk about in part three, which is uh, keeping the time of writing um, in, in, a, in a different kind of way. So as, as Richard was talking, he, he was mentioning things like peer review, workshopping, spaces for drafting. And what you were saying, you know, uh, allowing for there to be time when, when we get to what, what I call, what a lot of people call a discovery draft, which is when your thesis appears at the end, if you have time, you can turn that paper on its head. Yep. And, 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 and then produce a much better, a second draft, but you have to allow for the, uh, keeping the time of writing. And then, uh, you know, j- just to, to elaborate on what Richard was saying, when you do that, what, 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 what we discovered, um, and this is still something that, um, I'm trying to put into practice. Well, um, it is a challenge mm-hmm. is that the writing process affords multiple occasions for prayer. Mm. Um, at every stage, uh, one can offer prayers that are relevant to what, what are going on at that stage. So the blank page becomes an occasion to offer a prayer about entering into the process of co-creating. Yeah. I mean, um, um, yeah, go ahead. Richard. Yeah, I would just say that this is another thing that's kind of implicit in the book, but it's important to make it explicit, especially in a context like this one. Jim and I are really committed to a picture of writing that's inherently collaborative. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, And we actually think that that's a truer description of what happens when we write. Um, So we we resist the capital R romantic picture of the kind of solitary genius, you know, in his or her study, just kind of suddenly effusively producing this brilliant manuscript. That's just not how writing works. And that's not how it should work. And the truth of the matter is, is that because writing so hard, you always need other people's help. So just let them in. Um, let God into the process. Let your peers into the process. Um, you know, I, like I don't write anything that a peer or a, a, a research assistant reads before I set I submit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've even oriented my career towards certain writing opportunities where I know the editors and I trust that the editors are go- are going to really carefully review, sometimes in uncomfortable ways, the work that I send them. Um, Because I understand that the writing process is inherently collaborative. The best work that I can write is work that is written with other people's help. And, and, and part, of, part of our task as, as teachers is to help bring students into that process, to realize yeah. that this is what professional writers do. Professional right. writers right. share their work with other people before publication. Yeah. yeah. So. Absolutely. All right, we're running out of time here. Can I ask you one more question? The question I traditionally ask at the end of these conversations, and that is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Mm-hmm. Jim Beitler, can we start start with you? Absolutely. I've, I'm I'm actually going to give uh, uh, a shout out to the uh, one of the one of the people we included in this book, and that is Ooh. Stephanie Paulsell. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so she wrote uh, a piece. So good. Uh, uh, that is called writing as a spiritual discipline. Um, 
she teaches at, I think it's Harvard Divinity School. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, so she wrote this, this essay, Writing as a Spiritual Discipline, and she graciously allowed us to include that essay as an appendix uh, in our book. And so many of the, uh, our ideas uh, were motivated, enriched by her work. Um, and so I think uh, in terms of charitable writing, um, she was one, one person that I think we were both inspired by. Great. Yeah. So good. Um, I have three. Okay. One is my boy, Dante. Um, okay. I, I just love Dante so much. And Dante is an intellectual universe that uh, I hope people will come to Wheaton College to enjoy with me. Um, <laughs> so you read Dante, you think, yeah, I think I, w- I, I want to try that. Uh, yeah. I, I, so I, I teach Dante every semester. And, and honestly, Dante is kind of daunting um, if, if you're reading the wrong translation on your own. But mm-hmm. I, I just, I find uh, endless resources in the Dantean universe. Um, even when I think Dante is, is terribly wrong about things, I, he's wrong in ways that are provocative for me. Um, uh, and I, I feel the same way about Count Tolstoy. Um, I, 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 during the pandemic phase, I have read War and Peace four times. Really? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I, I find sentences on almost every page that are really illuminating to me. Um, and then lastly, I, I, I already said this, but I, I want to reiterate our, my thorough debt to St. Augustine, mm-hmm. um, who I think has made it possible for me to be a Christian academic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and again, you know, Augustine is hard, it's hard to pick up City of God, but Confessions is a very approachable, beautiful yeah. work written by uh, a teacher of rhetoric. But I, I think, Jim, it's the same for you. Like when we read Augustine, we're just always thinking to ourselves, oh my gosh, like should I write an article about this or yeah. should yeah. I use this as an epigraph? Um, the, the other Augustine uh, book that's very, very uh, short, uh, but is worth your time is On Christian Doctrine oh, or, so or On, on yeah. Christian Teaching. Yeah. Um, it's just I a fantastic yeah. uh, book. So. Yeah, so true. And that's one, right. and that was one of the books that inspired this, uh, this project because it inspired yeah. Alan. So, yeah. 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 Wonderful. Well, Jim Beitler, Richard Gibson, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been a, been a joy to be here. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. 